0: Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California Slap Law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, from the law firm of Morrison Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the 32nd episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. My name is Aaron Morris. I'm a partner with the Southern California Boutique Law Firm of Morris & Stone, recognized by the city of Lancaster as a premier law firm. Really, they sent us gold-embossed proclamations and the whole nine yards. If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, or if you need to fight an attorney fee application following an anti-slap motion, please feel free to call at 714-954-0700 or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. Great times at Morrison Stone. We just 100% defeated an anti slap brought against our client. This case involved one of those horrible situations where a homeowner lets their home fall into such disrepair that it becomes a hazard to the homeowner and the community, and the government has to step in and perform some repairs. Thankfully, though, this one did not end that way. The homeowner's insurer stepped up and paid for all of the repairs the homeowner ended up with a greatly improved home at no cost to himself. But like most of us, the homeowner didn't like the fact that the government had told him what to do, so he took to the Internet to state his frustrations. Unfortunately, instead of directing his ire at the government, he directed it to the insurance company and our client, the contractor who had rebuilt the home. And like so many people who go on the Internet to complain about a company, the homeowner felt that the true facts were not enough, and instead he embellished greatly. He accused our client of being unlicensed, of using stolen materials, and of defrauding the insurance company. None of this was true. He even claimed that he had never authorized the repairs, even though he'd signed off on all of the plans. So before we were ever involved, the contractor hired a law firm to sue the homeowner for defamation. When the defendant responded with an anti slap motion, plaintiff's counsel brought in the Sultan of Slap to fight the motion. In the next episode of the California Slap Law Podcast, I'll take a deep dive into all the mistakes made by the defense counsel. But for today's argument, his biggest mistake was procedural. A special motion to strike is a special motion to strike. It's just special. Well, isn't that special? (laughs) As Boral v. Schnitt explained, you can strike individual allegations via an anti-slap motion, but you must identify the allegations you are seeking to strike. Defense counsel did not specify what he wanted to be stricken beyond the entire complaint. In his conclusion, he just said, You know, Your Honor, if you really wanted to, you are allowed to strike individual allegations. I responded that doing so would be a violation of due process. How can I oppose the striking of allegations if you haven't told me which allegations you're seeking to strike? Imagine bringing a motion for summary adjudication, and you state only that the court should strike claims as appropriate. Had defense counsel given proper notice, I think he might have been successful in striking some individual allegations. It wouldn't have made much difference, and I think I could have defeated any motion for attorney fees by arguing that his victory had been only illusory, but I was happy to avoid all of that. The judge agreed that, as presented, the motion was an all-or-none proposition and denied the motion on that basis. Another satisfied Morrison Stone client... And that brings us to today's topic the top three most miscited anti slap cases. Although the legal community appears to have come far in the past 30 years as regards awareness of the anti slap statute, it is still often the case that when I bring an anti slap motion, the plaintiff's attorney is caught totally unawares. <laughs> Even in those cases where I have warned opposing counsel of my intention to bring the motion, it is usually apparent that they thought it would not be an issue based on some miscomprehension of what the statute covers. This leaves them to scramble to try and find some basis to challenge the anti-slap motion, and in doing so, they inevitably cite to one or more of the following three cases. Sadly, they almost always cite these cases in ways that do not apply. I will identify the top three cases cited by defense counsel and explain why they almost never apply. Coming in at the number three position is the case of Nguyen Lam versus CAO. Don't know how to pronounce that. All the case citations are in the show notes if you're interested. Now, decisional law makes it very clear that a plaintiff cannot amend their complaint to try and escape an anti slap motion. The motion freezes the pleading in time, and the analysis is based on the complaint as alleged. No take backs, no. But what I really meant to say was So, in a recent case, the plaintiff's complaint alleged that my client had published three separate reviews about his business and sought damages for the reviews, claiming they were false and defamatory. When I performed my anti-slap analysis, I noted that the first of the three reviews had been published more than a year before the complaint was filed, meaning it was barred by the statute of limitations. On that basis, I sought to have that allegation stricken and dealt with the other two publications on other grounds. In response, plaintiff's counsel argued that the allegations had been offered only by way of background, claiming that it was so obvious that the statement was barred by the statute of limitations that it could not seriously be believed that plaintiff was suing for that review. In any event, plaintiff's counsel argued, to the extent that the court was inclined to strike the allegation, plaintiff should be permitted to amend, under the reasoning of Nguyen Lam, to make clear that plaintiff was not seeking damages for that particular review. This is the manner in which counsel typically tries to use Nguyen Lamb, citing it as some overarching rule that a complaint can be amended to address any issues raised by an anti-slap motion. The court disagreed and granted my anti-slap motion. In another action, I had lost on the anti-slap motion, but the Court of Appeal reversed and ordered the trial court to grant the motion. The plaintiff, an attorney who was representing himself, then brought a motion to amend the complaint, adding a slew of new claims. He argued that Nguyen Lam permitted him to do so. That motion was also denied. New Lam was decided on a very narrow legal issue and does not stand for the proposition that one can amend a complaint to avoid an anti-slap motion. In that case, a Vietnamese former appointee for school board superintendent brought a defamation action against a person who allegedly told school board members that she was a communist. Defendant responded with an anti-slap motion. Part of the basis for the anti-slap was that plaintiff was a public figure and had failed to allege that the defendant had acted with actual malice. However, in opposing the motion, the plaintiff had set forth sufficient evidence to satisfy the element of actual malice. So what was the court to do? While it was true that the complaint was technically insufficient because the plaintiff had failed to allege actual malice, It was clear from the evidence that there was actual malice. Should the court turn a blind eye to the evidence and dismiss the action because the complaint failed to allege all the elements? Normally, when a complaint fails to allege a key element, it is attacked by way of demur and the plaintiff is afforded the opportunity to amend. Is it fair to dismiss a case for a missing element just because the complaint was attacked by way of an anti-slap motion as opposed to a demur? Well, here is how the Nguyen-Lam court resolved the issue, quoting the reasoning of the trial court. Disallowing an amendment would permit defendant to gain an undeserved victory, undeserved because it was not what the legislature intended when it enacted the anti-slap statute. The legislature declared its purpose of enacting Section 425.16 was to protect the valid exercise of the constitutional rights of freedom of speech and petition for the redress of grievances. But false statements uttered with actual malice serve no public interest, and where the strike opponent has demonstrated the requisite probability of success in showing such malice, as here, her complaint falls outside the purpose of the anti-slap statute. Indeed, it is not a slap suit at all. Simply put, the legislature did not intend to shield statements shown to be malicious with an unwritten bar on amendment in the circumstances here. Consequently, the trial court did not err in permitting plaintiff to amend her complaint to plead actual malice in conformity with the proof presented at the hearing on the strike motion. Thus, Nguyen Lam does not stand for the wholesale proposition that a plaintiff is free to amend their complaint in the face of an anti-slap motion. To the contrary, the court recognized a procedural quagmire in allowing amendment to defeat the movements showing on the first prong of the anti-slap statute. But Nguyen Lam focused on the second prong of the anti-slap analysis and concluded that if it is clear that the evidence is sufficient to show that the plaintiff is more likely than not to prevail in the action, then it would serve no purpose to deny them their day in court. In conclusion, Nguyen Lam stands only for the proposition that if the evidence presented in opposition to the anti-slap motion is sufficient to satisfy the second prong, then leave to amend should be granted. Coincidentally, with the anti-slap I just defeated, I cited to Nguyen Lam, but I did so properly. I wasn't involved in drafting the original defamation complaint. I was brought in as the pro from Dover to fight the anti-slap. We are the pros from Dover, and we figure to crack this kid's chest and get out to the golf course before it gets dark. The anti-slap motion was based in part on a defective pleading. In a defamation action, privilege is actually an affirmative defense that the defendant must allege and prove, but it should be alleged in the complaint that the statements were unprivileged. I never give it much thought, it's just boilerplate allegation I always include in my defamation complaints, but in this case, counsel failed to do so. This presented the perfect application of the Nguyen Lamb holding. In opposing the anti-slap motion, I presented evidence to show that the speech was unprivileged and as a fallback position argued that should the court find the plaintiff should have alleged that the speech was unprivileged, leave to amend should be granted. The court actually never addressed the issue of the amendment, but agreed that we were more likely than not to prevail on the action and denied the anti-slap motion. The second most frequently cited case cited in most every anti-slap opposition is Weinberg v. Faisal. In this case, a token collector sued the publisher of an advertisement in a token-collecting newsletter —did you know there were such things— for libel, slander, and intentional infliction of emotional distress after the publisher told others that the collector had stolen a collector's item from him. The trial court denied the publisher's anti-slap motion, and the publisher appealed. As the court held, simply stated, causes of action arising out of false allegations of criminal conduct made under circumstances like those alleged in this case— are not subject to the anti slap statute. Otherwise, wrongful accusations of criminal conduct, which are among the most clear and egregious types of defamatory statements, automatically would be accorded the most stringent protections provided by law without regard to the circumstances in which they were made, a result that would be inconsistent with the purpose of the anti slap statute and would unduly undermine the protection accorded by paragraph 1 of Civil Code Section 46 which includes as slander any false and unprivileged communication charging a person with a crime and the California rule that false accusations of crime are liable per se. Because defendant failed to demonstrate that the challenged causes of action arose from protected activity, the trial court properly denied defendant's special motion to strike. From this reasoning, counsel routinely argued that any defamation action is somehow outside the anti slap statute. But in reality, Weinberg v. Faisal really adds nothing to the anti slap analysis. Defendant did not report, this is, this is citing from the case, defendant did not report his suspicions to law enforcement and there is no evidence that he intended to pursue civil charges against plaintiff. Rather, it is alleged that defendant began a private campaign, so to speak, to discredit plaintiff in the eyes of a relatively small group of fellow collectors. Since the record does not support a conclusion that plaintiff is a public figure or that he has thrust himself into any public issue, defendant's accusations against plaintiff related to what in effect was a private matter. Under these circumstances, the fact that defendant accused plaintiff of criminal conduct did not make the accusations a matter of public interest. Thus, Weinberg was simply a first-prong analysis. The court found that this private dispute between Faisal and Weinberg was not a matter of public interest, and therefore did not fall under the anti slap statute. The court simply made the obvious observation that claims of criminal conduct do not automatically become matters of public interest. If such was the case, then every false claim of criminal conduct would be afforded special speech protections. For this reason, there is no foreseeable situation where the reasoning of Weinberg would assist in defeating an anti-slap motion. If the defamatory speech in question satisfies the first prong of the anti-slap analysis, then the only issue is whether the plaintiff's evidence is sufficient to satisfy the second prong. Weinberg does not hold that defamatory speech is not subject to the anti-slap statute, the proposition for which it is almost always cited. And the number one case attorney's site is, drumroll, Flatley v. Morrow. You probably knew this was coming. Flatley was an attempted money grab where the attorney acted so horrifically it was considered to be extortion. I'll set forth the details at length because one must fully appreciate the conduct of Morrow in order to fully understand the holding of Flatley. Michael Flatley was a performer and dance impresario who owned the stock of corporations that present live performances by Irish dance troops throughout the world. You know, he's the river dance guy. On March 4, 2003, Tina Marie Robertson sued Flatley in Illinois for battery and intentional infliction of emotional distress, based on allegations that Flatley had raped her in his hotel suite in Las Vegas. Robertson was represented by D Dean Morrow, an Illinois attorney. Robertson and Morrow then appeared on television where Robertson described the alleged rape in extreme lurid detail. On March 6, 2003, Flatley filed his complaint in the present action in California against Morrow and Robertson for defamation and extortion. Morrow, the attorney, answered with a general denial and an anti slap motion claiming that Flatley's claims were barred by the anti slap statute. Flatley's opposition to the motion argued that Morrow's communications constituted criminal extortion and were therefore not protected by the anti slap statute. He argued further that he could demonstrate a probability of prevailing on the merits. In support of his opposition, Flatley filed several declarations, including his own and those of his personal secretary, Thomas Troutman, and a bunch of other people. The really important one, though, is Thomas Troutman. The declaration submitted by Flatley set forth the following scenario, taking this directly from the opinion. Flatley met Robertson in Las Vegas sometime before October 2002. Robertson was very friendly, and Flatley gave her the phone number of his personal secretary, Thomas Troutman, in the event she wanted to reach Flatley. In October 2002, Robertson called Troutman to arrange a rendezvous with Flatley. On October 19, 2002, Robertson arrived at Flatley's two-bedroom suite in the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas. She was told that one room was for Flatley and the other one was for Troutman. Robertson put her belongings in Flatley's bedroom. She did not request alternative accommodations or protest the accommodations offered. I feel like I should have romantic music playing for this next part. That evening, Flatley and Robertson had dined together. Upon returning to Flatley's hotel room, Robertson excused herself to the bathroom. Flatley disrobed and got into bed. Robertson reappeared, nude, and entered Flatley's bed, where she remained for the night. According to Flatley, everything that transpired between him and Robertson that night was consensual. At no time did Troutman, who was in the next room, with the door open, hear any cry or complaint of any kind. This is me talking now, not the court. It's pretty strange that your secretary would be in the next room with the door open while you're doing the deed, but as this case demonstrates, that should probably be standard procedure among celebrities. The next morning, Robertson entered the common area of the suite and kissed Flatley in Troutman's presence. Her demeanor was relaxed and happy. She ate breakfast with Flatley, speaking affectionately to him and cordially to Troutman. Upon leaving, she kissed Flatley again, and she said she hoped to see him again. On January 2, 2003, Morrow sent a letter addressed to Flatley that was received by Flatley's attorney, John Brandon. This is the letter that was later determined to constitute extortion. Quick aside here, even before becoming an attorney, I always abided by the rule that you should view everything you write as a possible trial exhibit. Picture what you are typing as an exhibit that will be projected up onto a large screen and scrutinized by strangers. As you will see with this letter, Marl was seeking $100 million to settle a very weak and implausible case. Any chance at settlement required that the letter be taken as seriously as possible, yet he sent out a letter that was full of typos and misspellings. You'd think that for a chance at $100 million, he would have taken the time to proofread the letter. The letter is attached to the court decision if you want to take a look. Now back to our story. In small print, the letter stated, This communication is governed by all applicable common law decisions of the state of Illinois and Rule 408 of the U.S. Federal Rules of Evidence. All information contained herein is for settlement purposes only. The subject line stated in all capital bold-faced underlined type, Lawsuit against Michael Flatley individually and Unicorn Entertainment, Inc. and the Venetian, which he misspelled, Resort Hotel Casino Venture Group. Morrow identified his client as Jane Doe and referred to a report on file with the Las Vegas Police Department. The next line stated, date of rape, sex assault, October 19th and 20th of 2002. The letter got off to a great start. It said, Dear Flatley, and got his name wrong. And it said, please be advised that we represent a woman. We represent a woman with whom you engaged in forcible sexual assault on or about October 19 20, 2003. That was the wrong date. It was 2002. Please consider this our first and only attempt to amicably resolve this case against all defendants named in the complaint at law enclosed herein. On the second page, a large caption announced notice of claim and attorney's lien. The letter continued, please consider this as our notice of our attorney's liens. You got that wrong too. We hereby make a claim and lien in the amount of 40% of the total recovery of the funds obtained through trial or settlement plus all costs of suit and attorney's fees levied against you. I find that paragraph very strange because he's asserting his lien in a demand letter. I've never done that, and as far as I know, it has no force of law. Maybe things are different in Nevada or Illinois, but I I think he was worried that he had this great case and he wanted to make sure that he grabbed onto his 40% in case uh, the victim, quote-unquote, decided to take it to somebody else. So right off the bat, he's asserting his lien in the demand letter. Back to the story. After urging Flatley to contact his insurance company, the letter states, Tell them to contact me directly. It warns that Flatley's failure to do so will result in the filing of a lawsuit and that all judgment proceeds will be sought directly from your personal assets. The letter then states the amounts claimed in the lawsuit are naturally negotiable prior to suit. The letter warns, however, that if Flatley fails to meet the January 30 deadline, All offers to compromise, settle, and amicably resolve this case will be automatically withdrawn. The letter then goes on to advise flatly that Morrow had retained several forensic expert witnesses whose opinions shall be disclosed in detail in the public filed court documents in this litigation. Morrow also advises Flatley that he has worked at Lloyd's of London and is familiar with international law. These causes of action allow for punitive damages. Punitive damages are non-dischargeable in bankruptcy and are recognized under British law. We can therefore execute and collect any award against Michael Flatley personally in the U.S. or the U.K. The next paragraph is the one that asks for, or at least alludes to the $100 million settlement, but here's the fun part. The third paragraph states in its entirety, any and all information including immigration, social security issuances and use, the IRS and various state tax levies and information will be exposed. We are positive the media worldwide will enjoy what they find. After a paragraph describing the potential testimony of two other experts, apparently with respect to the failure of the Las Vegas hotel in which the alleged rape occurred to provide requisite safeguards for our client, the fifth paragraph again warns that all pertinent information and documentation, if in violation of any U.S. U.S., federal, immigration, IRS, Social Security Administration, U.S., state, local, commonwealth, U.K., or international laws shall immediately be turned over to any and all appropriate authorities. This is a big romper room no-no under the rules of professional conduct. An attorney can't threaten criminal action in order to extract a civil settlement, and that's clearly what he's doing here. The final paragraph warns that once the lawsuit is filed, additional causes of action shall arise, including defamatory comments, civil conspiracy, reckless supervision, which are just the beginning, that ample evidence exists to prove each and every element for all these additional causes of action. Again, these actions allow for punitive damages. He really wants them to worry about those punitive damages. At the top of the final page of the letter is the caption, First and final time limit settlement demand. Then in case he hasn't warned enough, beneath his signature, a final paragraph warns flatly that along with the filing of the lawsuit, press releases will be disseminated to various media sources, including but not limited to. And then he lists numerous media outlets that he's going to contact. That's unbelievable. Regardless of the merits of the case, if you, if you don't cave, we'll tell the media you are a rapist. Again, not really related to the litigation. Attached to the letter were 51 pages of material, including a draft of Robertson's complaint against Flatley, Robertson's medical records pertaining to treatment for the alleged rape, certificates of achievement awarded to Morrow, newspaper articles chronicling Morrow's multi-million dollar cases and settlements, and the CV of Morrow's experts. Flatley did not cave to the extortion and did not pay Robertson and Morrow. Morrow's reply to Flatley's opposition to the motion to strike argued that his January 2, 2002 letter was a pre-litigation settlement offer, yeah, it was just an offer, in furtherance of his constitutional right of petition, and therefore it was protected by Section 425.16. He argued further that Flatley had failed to demonstrate a probability of prevailing on any of his causes of action. In September 2003, the trial court denied Morrow's motion to strike. It found that Morrow had not satisfied his initial burden that his communication was protected by Section 425.16. In other words, he didn't even satisfy the first prompt. Morrow appealed and the Court of Appeal affirmed, holding that as a matter of law, Morrow's communication constituted criminal extortion and therefore was not protected under Section 425.16. So, in very short summary, flatly stands for the proposition that the anti slap statute does not protect illegal activity. Thus, in opposition to most every anti-slap motion I've filed, the other side cites to flatly and then argues that the conduct in question was illegal. It is almost as though the attorneys had read only the cliff notes and don't actually understand the holding of Flatly. For example, I will often proceed a defamation action with a demand letter. To make the letter more impactful, I sometimes include the draft complaint. From this, the defendant can see we have already taken the time to draft the complaint and we are ready to pull the trigger— and that this is not the sort of situation where we may or may not pursue the case beyond the demand letter. In essence, my letter simply states that the facts, as I know them, are set forth in the complaint, and if any of those facts are incorrect, the defendant should contact my office. I specifically explain that as an attorney can only know the facts as provided by the client, this is the opportunity for the defendant to let me know if I've been misinformed. It is how I perform my due diligence before actually filing the case. Incredibly, some defense attorneys have argued that my letter like that in flatly amounts to extortion specifically because I have attached the draft complaint. After all, Morrow attached a draft complaint, so any time an attorney attaches a draft complaint, it must be extortion, they reason. Demand letters are specifically protected by the anti slap statute because they relate to pending litigation. Attaching a draft complaint does not alter that equation. In fact, to the contrary, it shows that it's in contemplation of litigation. I've already prepared the complaint. So it's a ridiculous argument that they make. Morrow did not step over the line into extortion because he attached a draft complaint. The extortion came from the threats to line up the media and to follow flatly around to all his performances. Such threats do not relate to the litigation. And when the, you attached a complaint so it is extortion argument does not apply, every defense attorney argues that something my client did was illegal. My favorite example arose from a city council meeting. At the meeting, one of the council members took umbrage with something my client had said and sued for defamation. I'm sure you understand there could not be a clearer example of protected speech. Statements made at a city council meeting are specifically protected by Code of Civil Procedure Section 425.16E, right? So faced with my anti-slap motion, the attorney for the council member desperately sought to find a way to make the statement at the meeting illegal under the reasoning of flatly The best he could come up with was a memo that had been issued by the city manager, which outlined how meetings should be held. In that memo, which obviously had no force of law, the city manager had stated that comments from the lectern should be civil. The attorney argued that my client's comments had not been civil, and therefore were illegal, as defined by Flatley. Not once in any of the oppositions to my anti-slap motions has the Flatley versus Morrow argument been successful. Like all three of these cases, Flatley remains good law and can certainly be relied upon under a proper fact pattern, but the conduct must actually be illegal, and at least in all of my cases, such has never been the case. If you're going to cite to Flatley, make sure it rises to the level of illegality that was present in Flatley. By the way, Flatley was awarded $11 million in his action against Morrow and Robertson. Flatley later settled for some undisclosed amount. Quick war story. I once thought I'd made a mistake on a fee application that was going to keep me from recovering my attorney fees on a case. It it amounted to about $50,000. It wouldn't have been life-altering, but I was just sick about it. I kept questioning how I could have let it happen. But as the old joke goes, I once thought I'd made a mistake, but I was wrong. Everything was fine and there was no problem with the fee application. I I got my attorney's fees. But based on life experiences like that, I can't imagine how a guy like Morrow deals with something like this. In a horrible lapse of judgment, he thought his letter was a good idea. He thought a letter like that would lead to a big payday. Instead, it led to an $11 million judgment against him, and he will forever be known as the guy who wrote the letter in Flatley versus Morrow. I feel like I would spend every day of the rest of my life kicking myself for doing something so foolish. defeated another anti-slap motion in the past couple of weeks and that led to a strange situation regarding the trial date stick around for the after show for an interesting tactic to use when seeking a continuance today's lesson is simple and it's not a lesson that should need to be learned read the cases you intend to cite to make sure they say what you think they say have a great week and try not to slap anybody next episode, I'm going to discuss the three mistakes counsel make when pursuing anti-slap motions. Spoiler alert, one of them is to think that any discussion of protected speech is somehow protected speech. I represent a doctor who sued for defamation for online postings by a patient. The patient told many lies about the doctor, but mixed in with all of the lies, she told about how she had filed the claim with the medical board. So in response to my complaint for defamation, defense counsel brought an anti-slap motion claiming that the speech was protected because it concerned the complaint to the medical board, which is protected speech. The motion was, of course, denied. The protection does not spread that far. A report to the medical board enjoys protections even if the statements to the medical board are lies. But the patient can't then go on Yelp and tell the same lies and claim protection because of the lies related to the medical board investigation. To be protected, the speech must advance the litigation or the investigation. It can't simply be about the litigation or the investigation. So I defeated the anti-slap motion, but the motion had stayed all discovery for six months or something. The case was filed on, let's say, June 1st. They took about a month to serve my client, and then we answered and cross-complained on August 1st. They filed the anti-slap motion to our cross-complaint two months later on October 1st. And the earliest available date for the hearing was in January. While all that was going on, the court had dutifully scheduled the trial date in June. When the discovery stay was finally lifted, both sides were pretty good about getting straight to discovery, but then the court issued an order that no jury trials would be heard without a settlement conference. We all agreed to seek a continuance in order to afford more time for a settlement conference and to complete our discovery. None of us thought it would be an issue. We were very wrong. At the ex-party hearing, the judge refused to continue the matter. He said he didn't care about the new rule mandating settlement conferences. But the final status conference was the very next day. This time, we invoked the rule that pretty much requires a court to continue a trial 30 days on stipulation of the parties. The same judge that the very prior day had denied our continuance went along with the 30-day continuance. He was a kind of a strict constructionist, and the rule is what the rule is. So the rule said he had to give us 30 days. So it's a strategy you may wish to employ. Try for a longer continuance if that is what is needed, and if that is unsuccessful, then use the 30-day rule as a fallback position. Thanks for listening. See you next time on the California Slap Law Podcast.